morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of OTT, where I discuss everything related to fashion, pop culture, and, well, really, whatever I want. (laughs) Today is a very special day for me because I am sitting here with journalist, author, creative consultant, and my mentor, the incomparable Kenya Hunt. Starting out at Jane Magazine, her work has been published in The Guardian, Vogue, Mary Claire, and The Evening Standard, just to name a few titles. Kenya's editorial career has seen her travel across the pond where she worked as Elle's UK deputy editor. Kenya went on to become fashion director of Grazia UK, where in January of 2021, she will add deputy editor to her job description, booked and busy, times two. After coming up in the industry in the late 2000s at fashion's most homogeneous and whitewashed time, Kenya decided to be the change that she wanted to see and founded Room Mentoring, where she connected current industry titans with the up-and-coming aspiring designers, stylists, journalists, and image makers of color. Along with myself, she has changed so many lives and helped us feel valid and welcome in this industry. In my introduction, I mentioned that Kenya is an author. She just released her first book, Girl, Essays on Black Womanhood, a powerful, funny, thought-provoking collection of essays spanning from Blackness as a trend in fashion, medical racism, virtue signaling, to the power of Black Panther. Queen of sharing the mic, she included a mixture of her girlfriends and women that she admires to also write essays, including beauty editor Fumni Feto and Jessica Horn. It's a must-read book, and I'm so excited to have her today. Today, we'll be talking about her come up in the industry, what still needs to change, and of course, her soon-to-be classic book, Girl. Hello, Miss Kenya. Hello, Trey. Thank you so much for that introduction and for having me here. I've been so looking forward to this. First of all, I need to get, you know, I'm a cancer, so you know, I need to obviously get a little emotional, a little sentimental. (laughs) This feels like a full circle moment because you, I can't really add, but you have been a mentor of mine for, I think, the past three years. Yes. And uh, with room mentoring, you've changed so many lives, touched so many lives. I know when I look at myself three years ago, I did not have the confidence that I had for being introduced to you and being introduced to the mentoring group. The group, the people have gone on to do such incredible big things. And we talk, when we talk about, you know, the change that we want to see, I say this to you all the time. You do inspire that, you know, as people of color, most of us did not come from fashion backgrounds. We didn't come from art backgrounds. We don't know you know, how things work. And sometimes people of color, oh, and it's not our fault. It's because, you know, it's the way that we've kind of been indoctrinated. There's this idea of scarcity and there can only be room for one. And I think what you've done with room mentoring, not only have you given us such access to incredible resources, uplifted us, made us feel valid, but you've also shown us that idea of, in the words of Brother Nature, everybody eats. This idea that you can all win together and you can all come up together and thrive together and live your best lives together. Before you know, once the first day became cute, you know, you were doing this, you know, you were going out of your way. This, this was the real deal. And so I am always forever grateful for you. And so today it's so nice to be able to celebrate you because you are that girl, the doll, booked and busy. And when I think about you have a career, you have children, you have a husband, and I know you have a lot of cancers, the sign in your family. That's a lot, that's a, that's a lot of drama. That's like, you know, Black Dawson's Creek. So The fact that you just go out of your way to continue to uplift and inspire everyone, like. You have me tearing up on this Monday night. Gotten into the conversation and my eyes are already glassy. Oh, please, please. You need, you deserve to be celebrated for you because you do so much for everyone else. Thank you, Trey. I'm just, um, honestly, I mean, I'm just so proud of you today. It was announced that you are being recognized by the British Fashion Council as a part of their new wave 2020 as they basically christen christen a new wave of talent to watch, you know, and just declare who who the future rising stars are. And that is so you. And I'm just so incredibly proud. Like my heart is full. Just seeing what you've done I mean you just came out of school you just graduated like you're like a baby (laughs) so young Mm. and yet just so talented and just doing such incredible and amazing things already um and I remember the first time I met you like you were such a light and such a joy Mm. so charismatic and just completely owned the room as you still do I mean so full of confidence 
And so, yeah, just to, just to see how how far you've come, just, you know, in the time that you're in school and then now as a graduate as well. Also knowing like the challenges and the hurdles you faced this year in particular, just trying to get out of school, get your work done, get your graduate work. I mean, it's just been a real journey. So I, yeah, I'm just so incredibly proud of you and to see what you're doing with OTT. I mean, it's just really amazing. So I'm just excited to be here and to celebrate you as well. Oh, so, no, please, this is not about me. Um, but <laughs> first of all, congratulations on your you. first book ever. This is major. I need to first read what the glossy streets have been saying about Girl. <laughs> Enlightening, relatable, warm and witty. Girl is a must read, the Sunday time style. Girl is an essential, vital and urgent exploration of black womanhood that should be on everyone's reading list. Every page is meaningful and a call for empathy, hope and change. There is such power in the stories that are told from Kenya's own experience as a mother, as a journalist, as an American in London. Abele Okobe's essay on the unspeakable loss of a brother to police, brutality. If any book should enrich and disrupt your life, let it be this, Harper's Bazaar UK. Powerful, intelligent, and thought-provoking, a must-read for our times and beyond, L-U-K. Kenya Hunt provocatively threads cultural observations through relatable stories that illuminate our current cultural moment while transcending it. <laughs> and the legend that is Bethann Hardson, model and activist, girl speaks to the black woman of today. Now, People, some may say that it's timely. However, Black women's stories have always needed to be heard and needed to be amplified. Yeah. So this is not timely. It's it's now. It's been now. And now I'm, I'm glad that the world has this resource. Kenya, it is so funny. When I, was, I've been, I was texting you as I kind of like was reading through the book. It is funny. It makes you cry. It makes you laugh. As I was just like, yep, 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 yep. It speaks to the time. I'm so excited for people to read it and really understand so much about your life, the Black woman experience. Did you always know you wanted to write a book? I always wanted, you know, I've I've always wanted to write and I've always felt compelled to write. I mean, I can remember being a child, making up my own books. I don't know if you ever did this, you know, where you'd write, you'd do drawings on paper and then fold mm-hmm. them up and then try to make them look like a book. I, I can remember doing that growing up. And then, I mean, as a student studying English literature in school and then mm-hmm. as a graduate, you know, working my way from one title to another, I always knew that I'd like to explore writing in longer form. But I hasn't, you know, and then every, there's that cliche, everyone always thinks they have a book in them. Uh, so I thought that would probably be like a novel, like a work of fiction. And so I just didn't think that it would be the form, take the form that this book has taken. And so, yeah, I actually, I thought that I would probably just write like a novel and that would be my first, you know, I have so many friends from school and friends from uh, just writer peers and editor friends who've written novels and things. And I thought I would probably go down that path. But I, you know, the experience of writing these essays was such a joy, such a learning curve as well. So I'm, I, you know, I'm really glad that this has ended up being the, the thing that I did first. Well, girl, in the words of Michelle Obama, you have done it again. <laughs> you know, we're talking about girl, but I want to talk about Kenya as a young girl, right? When, what was life like in Virginia? You know, when I think of Virginia, I think of Missy, I think of Timberland. You know, I used yeah. to always want to be from the South. How did you get from baby Kenya to Kenya in New York, working at Jane Magazine? Also, one of my favorite pieces of yours of all time, and I tell you this all the time, is when you interviewed Beyonce. <laughs> yes. What, listen, I, I, I have like the PDF scan. It is brilliant. It was Beyonce, Giselle Knowles Carter before media training. <laughs> After you read Girl, and also let me just say quickly, you need to buy Girl for yourself and for a friend. After you have read Girl, read that piece. It's brilliant. It's a moment in time. But I would love to talk to you about your upbringing in Virginia and where you got your love of fashion from. Oh, thanks. Um, I mean, growing up, I got my love of fashion from my mother. It's funny because we just had Thanksgiving last week Mm. and I was showing my son's the Wiz. Have you ever seen The Wiz, Trey? Of course I have. Okay, yeah, exactly. I mean, also you're American and you're Black. I'm black, I'm black and the wrist is a bit limp, if you know what I mean. So of course, 
Of course, I've seen The Wiz. <laughs> it's legendary, iconic. So, I mean, I think watching that, showing that to my boys over the weekend, because that's in my household where growing up, like we were watching, you know, Thanksgiving every year. Um, and so it made me kind of nostalgic and it made me think through my earliest memories of fashion. And I think The Wiz definitely counts as one of those. There's that Emerald City scene where they're just walking around that giant rotating like vinyl record that's like life-size with Quincy Jones playing on the piano. And that is basically just like a, a, a fashion show on screen, like before Beyonce's Black is King and all of these, other, you know, other sort of incredible moments that we've seen with fashion on the screen, being musicians and black, and black artists and Black creativity, there was The Wiz. And so I just remember being like really, really small, a small child watching all these old movies with my mom because she was really into that and things like Diana Ross's Lady Sings the Blues and um, Mahogany, like all, my mother was into all that stuff. So I, I would just be sitting in the living room watching, like my mother would be watching these movies and I'd be a little girl watching them right with her and like getting an education in all these, these films. And so I think I developed my love of fashion through her. I mean, she had, you know, Ebony and Essence on the coffee table as, as, you know, Vogue and Elle. And she read all of it. She loved all of it. My aunts would go, my aunt and her girlfriends and my mom, they would go see like the Ebony fashion fair, traveling like shows and things. And they, I'd like overhear them talking about it when they come back. And so that definitely really influenced me quite early on and they all like love to dress and they love you know they would like they just looked really quite amazing and so I think that really influenced me and then reading magazines and that thing a reflection of myself a representation of black women and a lot of these like you know high fashion magazines that I would see and be really curious about or even like the teen magazines like 17 I look at them and I would not see many girls who look like me at all so that I think that's what really kind of piqued my interest. And then it just never went away. Like there'd have there'd be moments growing up where I'd be distracted or I'd I mean I'd just think, oh, okay, I want to be a doctor or a veterinarian or a marine biologist and all these different things. But I it all, my interest always kept returning to to fashion. So um yeah, and I mean then I found myself at university still like really interested in it. And then I started going to New York and interning like so many people do. Um, and so I'd go to New York and and I just have the experience of doing internships. And then also we used to call them externships. So you'd have a longer internship or you'd go and do an externship, which is, you know, you'd work with a title for like a couple of weeks. So I did them both and just, you know, I would accrue the experience and I loved it. And so then there was no turning back from then. I just realized like, hey, this is definitely something that I want to do. And then here I am all these years later. <laughs> here you are. It's so funny to think about mahogany because I love mahogany, but also like whenever I need to like hate men, that's when I, that's what I watch because it's like a simple reminder that like men aren't shit. A mess. I mean, literally a whole like mess. Trying to, a whole entire mess <laughs> trying to tell her to give up her career so she could be like a good girlfriend, a wife or whatever he wants. Literally. I mean, such a mess. Such a mess, literally. but great clothes, great clothes, great lashes. I mean, the scene where she was like, it's a dolman sleeve. <laughs> Don't talk to me until oh. you find out what a dolman sleeve is. <laughs> that oh, was that, good. that legendary eye roll when she's like in the atelier. A moment. Quite curious for you, when you moved to New York and you first started to do those externships, was the first one at the Village Voice? The first one was at, sorry, I, I mean, it's, it feels like it's been so long ago now. I was trying to, if the first one was at the Village Voice and the next one is, was at Vibe. Okay. Not the other way around. Yeah. So the first was the Village Voice, and then the next one was Vibe. And the Village Voice was amazing. Such a, I mean, it was such an institution, and its office, like its building, was in the West Village, and it, I mean, it just had such a rich history. So many incredible writers and personalities who came through there. I mean, I remember I used to stalk Lynn Yeager. <laughs> uh, when she was there, I used to just walk past her desk because she would be wearing all this Col Garcon all the time. And um, she had this hair, and, you know, such a unique look. And I'd never mm. seen any woman like her before. And I just remember I used to just, any excuse I could have to walk past her cubicle, I would just take it and I would like <laughs> talk her ear off sometimes. I just thought she was so incredible. I mean, and then Michael Musto, there were so many incredible people there. And then you'd have like, 
these like incredibly iconic like music writers who would pass through all the time like Greg Tate and people like that and so yeah it was a really like it was a real transformative experience for me and then what was the vibe like because like not to date you because I know you just turned 24 but what... oh, exactly <laughs> so at vibe I would have been there let me have a think I guess 2000 was Danielle Smith there when you were there yeah, she was. Danielle's incredible. I mean, and then also Mimi Valdez. Oh my god. And wow. um Emil Wilbekin. Wow. And so these are, you know, the people I looked up to oh my coming god. up and I stopped and all of that. So it was definitely like glory days. Wow. I just came up. I mean, all my friends and I, my peers from from my time, we came up looking up to them and just thinking like these these incredibly talented black editors and writers like putting out these amazing titles like it was such a great period for magazines in general I thought but also I think you know in terms of black editors because then you also had Vanguard Media who were doing Honey Magazine so they were all you know and then there was like the source and double XL and these editors were getting the funding to put out these titles, but also, you know, the advertising was coming in and, you know, mm-hmm. they, they had a sound business and they were winning awards and they were producing like, you know, really great journalism at the same time. So it was, you know, it was a really great thing to be able to come up. I mean, I wasn't on staff. I was just an intern. But, but an intern I mean, at Vibe and incredible. Prime. I mean, it was wow. so much fun. It was great to, to be able to witness that. So like, first of all, Vibe to me is like, if, everything like that's what i do in my free time like if you're on google they have the old issues of vibe so like that is what i do in my free time that famous story of foxy brown running up on danielle smith at mesa girl lives in my head rent lives in my head rent free if you ever so many stories if you ever need a laugh that's a great moment and i was french you know again like just is it i mean there were so many i mean i can just remember all of us my friends who were coming up at that time when we were all at the same level, like we would just look at them and just think, oh my gosh, they're like living the life. Mm. And the work that they were doing, and they've, uh, you know, so many of them have gone on to do like incredible work mm-hmm. as journalists, but also producing screenplays and films and documentaries. Mm. And I mean, they were just really like really brilliant storytellers. Uh, that must have been just so beautiful to come into the industry like that being just black women thriving yeah living their best life and so if this was in 2000 this was the same year that girlfriends came on the air and as girlfriends is in a resurgence i'm very curious for you if you were team tony or team joan oh that's a tough one i i was team tony thank you thank you thank you Thank you. Joan, Joan was low-key more toxic. At least Tony did her evil in public. Bit. At least right. Tony did her. And also Joan, that, remember that season when she just like tried to be an it girl? And listen, God doesn't like ugly. That God doesn't like ugly. How did she go from like the it girl to like vomiting in the bushes in like three episodes? But honest, Tony was the whole definition of black and bougie, legendary, legend, dark skin queen, like yeah. great clothes. She deserves so much more credit. They were beautiful. I mean, all that, stunning. That show was such a moment. I haven't seen it in a minute though, and now that it's just dropping on Netflix, I need to get caught up. But I mean, I used to. I mean, we would have viewing parties and watch it together. <laughs> just such a moment. I mean, that's how I really first got into Tracy Ellis Ross. She was like my friend in my head. I mean, her hair, her wash and goes were always flawless and perfect. I mean, they used to wear that MAC. I cannot remember the shade of MAC lipstick that they wore, but I started like wearing a very similar shade because of them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a red. It wasn't the Ruby Woo. It was like this, this fuchsia, almost similar to the head wrap that you're wearing, but with a little bit more blue and a yeah. little more, more saturated. But yeah, I mean, it's just everything from their hair to like their beat, like their, the lip color I mean I just wanted all of it the Louboutins always on point yeah totally Birkin goals that's so funny that like that was all kind of at the same time like that was all in the ether it Um, was it was just something to yeah I mean it was really it was so inspiring it was really something to sort of look up to and aspire to and it was just yeah I mean it was just it felt like a really incredible 
incredible time. And then things, and then things changed and took a turn. And like also publishing, you know, magazine mm-hmm. publishing goes through so many different like little twists and turns. It, it you know it ebbs and flows. And then you know those a lot of those titles in those magazines struggled to survive, and a lot of them folded. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of television, then television you know went in a different direction. But yeah, I mean, girlfriend, I mean, Mara Braca Kill. I mean, there were some really incredible women in television as well who were just like putting these stories out there. And that's why I, I love seeing, you know, a similar moment happening now where we have such heightened visibility and like, you know, so many women really pushing through and just really banning this idea of how we can look and who we can be and, and what we can do with our lives. 100%. And the idea that, again, Blackness is not monolithic. And I was thinking you're kind of coming up in the industry, 2000, you're at the Village Voice 5, and you're going into Jane. And as as you know, there was fashion between like, I feel like mid 2005 to like the 2010s were just like white, 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 white. And as I was on a Vanity Fair, like archive binge the other day, there was the, um, this cover in April 2005 at the height of like the Eastern European moment. Yeah. And it was Natalia, Natalia, my girl. Carolina Karkova, my queen. And the strap line was Slaves of Fashion, the New Beauties. And it's just all of these white women on the beach. When you went from Jane to kind of that era, right before you left to come to London, what was kind of your take on the industry at that time? Well, so I guess the thing is, I I did those internships and then right off the back of that kind of you know, my relation, it was my a relationship that I built a vibe that helped me get the job with Jane. Mm. And I think it was to so then, then my working life suddenly began to feel really quite white mm. um, because, you know, I was working in settings that were much more homogeneous. And I think that, you know, I mean, a lot had started to change, you know, and in terms of my career, I guess, in terms of backstory as well, it's like, you know, Fashion has been a through line, you know, but there have been moments where I was doing more culture writing and music writing, like definitely during those earliest, earliest days, kind of more on the culture and music side. And then I started gradually leaning into the fashion side of it. But it was definitely a period where there were not many, there certainly weren't many Black designers who were showing at New York Fashion Week. And then the models on the runway weren't, I mean, there weren't many Black models on the runway and you're right it was it was very much that eastern european ideal that had taken hold and that was i guess primarily led by prada you know was was and is such an incredibly influential brand and so as a result we started seeing a lot of other brands following suit and casting eastern european models and you know it's a very particular look i mean which is not unusual in fact looks come and they go yeah but it becomes problematic one thing when the look is like a shape or a silhouette or a hemline it's another thing when you're talking about a people and so all of a sudden it's like an entire demographic of people who are in or out and so that's when it when it's you know starts to feel wrong i think that's when i was really starting to i guess really start to move around and start i started you know covering shows and writing about fashion more, it was, you know, during this period when fashion had kind of was settling into a place that was very homogeneous. And so then I guess when I eventually moved here, interesting because it was off the back of a period in New York where Beth Ann Hardison, legend that she is, was leading quite a lot of conversations that were challenging the homogeneity in the fashion industry. Um, she'd had several town hall discussions and panels that were really sparking dialogue about the dearth of diversity on the runway. And she was really mm-hmm. advocating for the model, which she'd done in other periods and like in, in the years prior, decades before. And so you know, she started advocating for it again because it was needed. And so it was great because because of her work that you know we started to see a lot of change happen and then all of a sudden you just began to see or not all of a sudden you know this was the result of you know real planning and organization on her part and of, on the part of 
women and men around her who were like-minded and who were all sort of working towards the same thing. Mm. But we began to see some change happening in there were big moments and then sort of smaller moments that didn't make the headlines, but some of the ones yeah. that people might be familiar with are, you know, we were seeing campaigns that were featuring, you know, lots of black bottles and then uh, Vogue Italy had its Vogue, Vogue Black mm-hmm. issue. And that was, you know, quite a big moment. And so there was, we were beginning to see real, um, just real change in the industry in terms of like, you know, an increased visibility of black women on the runway. And so I guess what was happening in fashion when, when I got here, a lot of conversation about diversity in fashion and we were starting to see more visibility, but, you know, I did find it quite shocking. You know, I thought London was like shockingly white and homogeneous. Mm. There just weren't many, many people of color at all and so I was really quite shocked by that I mean I thought it was bad in New York but all these things have changed so much since then and in the industry still very clearly and obviously has a long way to go but I do think you know when I look back I am amused by the fact that we're still having these waves of intense conversations about diversity in fashion and then it dies down and then it you know it, it happens again but I think the beautiful thing about what we've seen this past year is that it does start, it feels like a real shift towards permanence. Like it doesn't feel so fleeting. There, I think people always ask, you know, is this a trend? Is this just a fleeting trend? But I think we're, we're, what we're seeing is it feels like a much more significant shift. Like I 100% agree with that because I feel like before it was always like, one model was like asked about diversity. And then that would be the story. And then maybe to get picked yeah. up somewhere or there'd be, oh, are the, are the catwalks too white? But then nothing would change. And it would just be kind of like a conversation kind of, you know, thrown to the wall. And like, maybe it was sick, maybe it wouldn't, you know, maybe something happened, maybe it wouldn't. Been in high ranking positions in fashion magazines for quite some time. You are a black woman. You, you know, you're not, you're not, it's not just you advocating for yourself, but it's advocating for people who look like you. What? was it like kind of being around those conversations in the 2010s when they weren't as prominent or they'd kind of be kind of like throwaway kind of conversations? It was, it was definitely more challenging because I I think it's now it's easier to say, Mm. you know, we need to see more diversity here. You know, I mean, people are more receptive to it. They're more open to it. And also it's, you know, it's never been more popular. Mm. I mean, let's just be real and frank. Let's yeah. Uh, let's keep it one hundred. Yeah. Where, whereas I think before in the two thousand ten and and earlier, I mean, it was just a harder conversation to have because I mean, people. Well, number one, the language, the language we use is constantly changing. You know, the, how we talk about identity and ourselves, and it's a there's a real learning curve, and people are stepping out of their comfort zones and getting it right, getting it wrong. But particularly on this side of the Atlantic in the UK, I think you know, people are just talking about it much more openly. Whereas before when I would bring it up, it would just, you know, it's a tricky conversation to have. It was really quite awkward. And then sometimes you would just have people who weren't so comfortable. They weren't used to talking about it. And so when they did, it could be quite painful because they didn't necessarily have the language to articulate their thoughts so well. So, I mean, I have to learn, you know, I have to be kind of thick skin and just learn how to pick my battles and mm. when to really take offense and when to just, you know, keep my eye on a sort of bigger prize in terms of like trying to get something accomplished. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely easier to have conversations like open and honest conversations about race and fashion now also you're better than me you know as the great nina parker once said on twitter when they go low i go medium because god's not finished with me yet i'm just i'm very curious from your point of view you know i'm just coming into this industry you've been in this industry you've lived you've seen as we're having these conversations that as people of color we've always been having behind the scenes watching i would say i'm gonna just say post june on of a kind of i don't want to say bland but a kind of general yeah there's a problem with race conversation how have you how have you taken that 
listen, I would love to see change. I'm sometimes like, how are you burning sage and you are the devil? The, the Black Square Brigade. The, right, the Black Square. Okay, the, the BSBs. <laughs> yes. I mean, oh gosh, I was just having a, I mean, before I got on with you, I was on a call with a friend, an editor friend, and we were having a bit of a giggle because people are definitely, well, let's just put it this way. I mean, there are those who we'd have to really convince Mm. to see the value and featuring a black woman on their pages or on their covers or that who are readily and happily doing it now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think, you know, it it is really interesting to see the, the change. I think it's a, it's a, a a great thing. I I think it's a really great thing. I mean, so in terms of the black square brigade, it's like, I am all for growth and progression and, and evolution. We'd mm-hmm. love to see it. I mean, that's the only way that we're gonna get from where we are to where we want to be. But I think it's, yeah, it, it just, it takes work. I mean, obviously in terms of the Black Square Brigade, you have those people who will engage in a certain amount of like bandwagoning to appear like they're on the right side of history and just do the bare minimum. And that can feel quite disappointing. But I think, you know, that's that's when we really need to see the work. Like, it's not enough to just, you know, value Black people for, like, the cool factor or the bits of the culture that you think will look cool in this main fashion story for this one moment. You know, it's really about, like, the work that you're really putting in to create some real change and create some equity in this industry. And and doing it in a way that really goes beyond lip service, because we have a, an entire world of people who are engaged and watching and readers and consumers who are paying attention who will certainly let you know if it rings hollow or if it doesn't feel right. Everybody knows what Google is. You know, Google is free. Google is free. Google is free. It's been free. You know? It's been free. yeah exactly so it's like i mean you just have to it's it's not enough to to post a a black square as we've seen we've watched people learn that the hard way actually speaking of learning you and i share a common experience we have we are both black i mean (laughs) hardy hard but we're both (laughs) black and we moved to london I'm quite curious. I would love for you to tell the viewers about your crossing the pond story and what was kind of like the biggest culture shock that you faced when you first got here. It's interesting. I want to ask you the same question. For me, I had always wanted to live abroad. I mean, I was born in Germany when I was too young to remember it at the age of three. And then just grew up like envying those friends who would go take part in like, you know, foreign exchange students programs, as they were called, mm-hmm. or who would just take semesters abroad. And then I had some friends who moved to Japan and taught English right out of school. And I didn't do any of that. So when I had the opportunity to move here, I jumped at the, you know, I jumped at it because it was a chance to live life elsewhere and get to know a different city in a different country, in a different part of the world. And so, yeah, coming here, I think the biggest challenge for me was just adjusting culturally. I mean, it was all of it. I mean, mm-hmm. making friends was challenging. I think also just not really having a community around me because community was like such an impart, important part of my life in New York. Mm-hmm. My tribe, like my extended network of girlfriends. And then and prior to that, growing up in Virginia with such a tight family network in that community which was my family and mm-hmm. their wider the wider community of family friends and they like was so vital to the making of me so it was tricky moving here not having that also like my boyfriend my my husband he was my boyfriend at the time he wasn't here just yet either mm. he was in california for a minute just tying up loose ends and then in new york and so i mean it just felt like really isolating i think that would that was the the biggest challenge for me just making friends off the bat Mm. But what about you? I mean, when you you came here for school, so how did you find it? So I came here for oh, look at you turning around, turning it around. Mm-hmm. I see, I see, I see. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fine. No, but Aimless. it's so funny because I knew one person, like kind of, when I moved here, but I didn't really know anyone. You know, I'd never been to England when I first moved here. It's so funny because part of it was easy because I think I have a very dark sense of humor, and so do the Brits. So I think in that sense, like we got along. I will say, I will say this. I definitely remember being very sad that it wasn't Nigerian. That, <laughs> that 
that really hurt me. But overall, I think like it was fun. I had a, I had a very fun, I had a very fun first year. I think I just made it work. I think I'm just very like adaptable. But how- I, I mean, I also you really kind of, I mean, you just, I mean, you really do light up a room. So I can see how you would have had like a great time. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, mean, I didn't meet you in your first year. I, I didn't meet you until like, you know, another year or two in. Mm-hmm. But I could see how you do really well in your freshman year. And finding, you know, your girlfriends over here. What was that process like? Because now, you know, I see you out here thriving. I mean, pre-coronavirus, you were out here living your best life. Could you talk about your first party at the Tate, which you can also read about in Girl, available everywhere, but for a snippet for the audience. <laughs> It, that you know, it was um, it was just a gradual process, building my network of girlfriends, or I mean, it, or yeah, building it, meeting girlfriends, just from one person to another. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I moved here, I had friends who had friends here, so they're like, oh, you're moving to London, okay, you got to meet this friend of mine. Um, so there was a lot of that, like that kind of blind date situation yeah. where that you know someone would introduce you to someone on email and that sort of thing. So I met friends that way. Then I also just met friends by like reaching out to them blindly. I'm Benny Fetter, who's a dear friend of mine, had written an article that I read and I really liked and connected with. And she and I seemed like we had similar backgrounds. And so I reached out to her on Twitter, I think it was, on DM. I just sent her a tweet and I was like, oh my God, I feel like we should meet. You know, can we meet for coffee? We've written for similar titles. <laughs> Back Anyhow, we, we met for tea, bonded, and we've been friends ever since. And then, yeah, and then that I have friends who I've just met through. I mean, there's a really good friend of mine, Anna Gunzelari, and I met a lot of my girlfriends through her as well. So, and yeah, and then just going to events, finding like pockets of people, like tribes mm-hmm. of people, and dipping in and out of various scenes. Book I talk about, there's this Chris Ophelia moment that happened at the Tate and it was just such a night of black excellence and I felt like oh this is like the London I've been wanting to see that I've been searching for where there was just galleries filled with just beautiful people of all backgrounds but I'd Mm. never seen so many black people and such a large event before in London and everyone just looked they were just glistening all this melanin and everyone looked Mm. so beautiful and you had such a wide range of people who did so many different things. I mean, and I was meeting so many people for the first time through some of my girlfriends who were there who just knew more people than I did simply, you know, by the fact that they were, you know, Brits. It was such a fun night. It was so electric and it just felt like, you know, it was so incredible. And I was like, this is, this is the London that I've been wanting to see. Because mm. I mean, in New York, I just had so much of that. That was just my daily. And then moving here, I mean, I just, I, I felt really homesick mm. for that. It's like, you know, being in those, like those buzzy electric rooms filled with people who look like you. Absolutely. Um, and, so, yeah, I mean, it took, it took time for me to, to tap into it. And you have this one quote in chapter four that I would love for you to elaborate on. You say, it took my leaving America to develop the fullest understanding of my blackness, womanhood and Americanness and to see the power in its intersection of those three things. Could you elaborate on that a bit for me? Well, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, you know, I grew up in Virginia. I don't know about your experiences, Trey, but I know in Virginia, I mean, you were pretty much either black or white. Mm. That was it. That was, that was the binary. So, I mean, there was any consideration about what country you might have come from or like, you know, the nuances of your background or any specifics Mm. beyond that. It was like you were either black or white. Maybe you were Filipino because there was a large... Filipino community mm-hmm. in Virginia, but that was pretty much it. Growing up, I remember seeing Rosie Perez in school days for the first time and not being able to compute. Someone said she's Puerto Rican. And I was like, what's that? You're in a black boy. I don't get it. What is this Puerto Rican? I mean, it's just a, and so, I mean, that, that's just, it kind of informed my view of race. I moved to New York, you know, I went to school, I went to university and I'm, my friendship group diversifies and all of a sudden, you know, I had girlfriends from all over the world uh, and from places like Haiti and Nigeria and Ghana and all of these different places. And I was introduced to a different worldview, but also this idea that being Black and Blackness is very much a kind of American, an American construct, you know, I had some girlfriends who 
basically just told me that in Nigeria, you know, they weren't black. They were, you know, you they were Igbo or Yoruba or, you know, it's black was the default there. So that, you know, they thought about it differently. And so I, I feel like it took me leaving America to really fully understand the, I guess, the fullness of what blackness can be and how it can look, depending on what your default is, depending on where you grew up. And then also, I think just to really understand like those interlocking systems of oppression, race, but also gender and class and, and how all of those things can impact one another and how they affected my lived experience as a Black woman. I, mm-hmm. I felt like it took my leaving America to ha- and having some distance from it to be able to look at it and consider it differently. Because if you go, if you grew up somewhere and that's all you know, you don't necessarily think to question it, even if you do think you're questioning it. Like you're growing mm-hmm. up, you're reading all these books, you're taking all these classes, you're engaging in all these dinner party conversations, and you think you're looking at something critically or at least I thought I was, but I mean, it wasn't really until I left distance allowed me to really look at things differently. And, and by things, I mean myself. I completely understand that 100% that distance. And then you kind of reflect and you're like, okay, wow. So like, this is, wow, this is really fucked up. This was okay. So we actually, you know, we have a lot of similarities here, like, you know, and that kind of re under that re understanding of yourself. But I mean, the other thing I wanted to add, though, is like in saying that, I don't want to say that one experience is better than the other because Absolutely. I mean, I, I, like there are people who, you know, will, will grow up and live in the states and remain there, and that doesn't mean to say that they don't have any a full understanding of who they are either. It just that's just my particular story and my experience. Because in saying that, I don't want to imply of that course. you have to leave or be able to have the means to go and live in other parts of the world in order to gain a full understanding of yourself. It's just, you know, that's how it worked out for me. And I think it's really interesting to hear that you shared that experience as well. I was really just so fascinated by the Lord's House, A Queen's Soul chapter, where you are sitting in a London hair salon, getting your hair braided, watching the Aretha Franklin funeral. Particularly in this year, with it being as volatile and unnerving as it has been, that so many different girlfriends of mine have really been grabbing hold of whatever it is in their life that's going to help them stay centered. And from the vast majority of them, it is not organized religion as I knew it growing up. And so many of us grew up in the Black church. I mean, it's such a key, like central part of the Black experience in the state or part of a lot of our upbringing, I find it really fascinating to see how few of us are are still as connected to it as an institution. And it made me just wonder why, like, why is that? I think particularly when you consider the rise in popularity of different religions and a lot of ones that are rooted in the continent. You know, I have some girlfriends who practice Ifa. Um, others who are, I mean, just practicing a range of different, um, I mean, hoodoo, mm-hmm. all sorts of kind of like hybrid religions, and then and then and then religions that just originate from the the continent, and exactly the kinds of religions that we would have been steered away from as, as children mm-hmm. and told like not to go anywhere near. So I guess that's what was really driving me to write about it. Also, just the idea of the institution mm. of the Black church is being, I guess, in a way, somewhat repressive. Uh, you grew up in the church as well. I mean, yeah, I just know, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, it's a lot. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of messaging to internalize growing up uh, and messaging that spans a number of areas of our lives from, you know, our sexual lives to our domestic lives, to our professional lives, like basically the kinds of people we're meant to go out into the world and be can be really repressive and restrictive. You know, I I found that to be definitely the case for women. I think anyone who doesn't just meet that very sort of narrow, rigid ideal of how we're supposed to look as people, but I think also as, you know, as Black people, I think the Black church is amazing for a lot of things. One thing I did want to say that I really was very appreciative of it to make sure that 
all Black women were, you know, represented trans women, Black yeah. non-binary people. You know, as I was reading that, you know, I was very just just admired that, that you really made sure that you made those notes. You made sure that, you know, they really were felt, you know, they felt like they were included in this book. That was important to me. That was very important to me. Um, I think the one thing I would have done differently, though, is worked in the voice of ideally someone who could speak to the trans experience mm-hmm. to have in the, in, in the book. That thinking back retrospectively on the book, I do wish I could have had someone who could have talked about the experience, mm-hmm. that experience of transitioning in retrospect, because I think that would have been a really, really great sort of perspective to have in there. Absolutely. Maybe in the reprint. Yeah. Um, exactly. You never know, because we know this is going to be a bestseller. <laughs> the glossy streets have already been gagging. And one of my favorite but, chapters that I thought was just so brilliant so right I remember texted you right after was the notes on wokeness uh, essay um I was wondering if you just talk a bit about that um so yeah for notes on woke I just that word has been weaponized so much in the past few years I mean I, I really identify with the original meaning of the word but I don't average I don't identify with what the word has become and the way it's been used the way it's been appropriated you know, it's become a punchline. It's become so many different things. And so I just wanted to really explore it, the journey, the path that that word has taken, particularly in a year like this. I find it really interesting because I wrote the essay before 2020, but mm. even just this year alone, you know, this past year. to see, But I can't think of a word that really speaks to the era as much as woke does. So, and I thought, I thought it was really quite interesting that I think it was Merriam-Webster or was it Oxford Dictionary? that released its words of the year. There was so much that's happened this year, they couldn't even just release one word. It, mm. There was a whole list. And wealth was on that list. And I think it, it's such a word of the era um, because it's it's one of those lightning rods, um, but it also originated within the black community. And, you know, it's been like appropriated and it's become something else entirely. So yeah, I think it's, and also its popularity has grown with social media. You can chart its rise alongside and, and Twitter and popularity of hashtags and the like. So I feel like when we look back like 20 years from now, like we'll look mm-hmm. back well um, and definitely associated with this, this period that we're living through. I will plug this book till the day I die. You need to go out and get girl. You need to go out and get girl for you, for a friend, for your friends. So I had a question for you because, first of all, again, as I said, as I was reading this book, there were moments where I was just like, yup, yup, yup. And when we talk about the wokes and the the fleeks and the blah, 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 the there was this one line in the bad bitch chapter, which just really speaks to my mood. Like it just speaks to my soul. It speaks to my, ah. you said I was willing and ready to do the work. I just wish weren't so much of it to do. Yes. When yes. I tell you, <laughs> when I, t- let me, actually, let, let me, let me get my pinot out. Let me get, this is also menage a trois. Um, if you would like to sponsor the kid, uh, support black business and by black business, I mean myself. Um, hit me up in the emails. My DMs are closed. When you said that, because so I always admire you, the fact that you, again, you are a wife, a mother, you have a job at a huge publication. You still mentor. How many kids are in room? I mean, I don't even know. We've got 50, we have 58 in the Google Doc. I don't, it's very, I don't know how she does it. Child. So I'm so curious for you. How has, because now with, you know, the age of social media, you know, I feel like there are always, you know, journalists who, you know, were celebrities, you know, the Truman Capones, whatever. But this idea that you kind of have to be on all the time. Yeah. You have to be, the style has to be together. You know, you have to post all your work. Hyper visibility has now become a part of your job. I'm so curious to know, how has social media in this new age changed your work? It's changed it radically. When I was coming up, I mean, you just wrote your pieces. And then, I mean, you would maybe like pop, I mean, you'd pop up on like a VH1 show here or E show there and do a lot of VH1 show. I know because I know exactly what you're talking about. Those E True Hollywood stories. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Were you you ever on a VH1 behind the mic? No, no. 
Um, but I would do like, um, <laughs> no, I was never on a VH1 show. But I mean, I have quite a few friends who were. But that, that was a thing. And I have some friends who did that and that became their thing. Like mm-hmm. that, I mean, that'd be the most of it. I, that'd be the extent of it. You were mm-hmm. a journalist, your story would appear in newspapers and magazines. Mm-hmm. And then you were a pundit and then you'd be on TV on occasion and you'd talk about it. And that was the thing. But then gradually, as social media became the thing that it is now, you know, there was the expectation to be the face of your work in a completely different way. So it wasn't enough to have a byline. You have to be a brand. And not everyone gave in to this pressure. But I mean, you know, we had the rise of the influencers as well Mm -hmm. in the the fashion space. And then all of a sudden editors were feeling pressure to dress up and be photographed as as well. And then editors, and then even publishers were looking at editors like, well, you, you need to be our resident. So, I mean, it, it's definitely changed a lot. And now our, our jobs just look completely different. But I think it's, I mean, so yeah, that side of the work can be, you know, qu- quite exhausting to stay on top of all of these different things. It's like mm-hmm. a TikTok here. Mm-hmm. It's a Reels there. It's a fleet. What is the new Twitter thing? It's fleet. Oh, hell no. And you know what? No, <laughs> no. First of all, God blessed you with a mute button. The day that Fleets, if you were smart, if you were that girl, the first day Fleets came out, you washed everyone's Fleets and you decided who to mute and who who not to mute. If you used your power wisely, you did that. I mean, I should have, I didn't even know. I mean, I'm late to the game because I'm old. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. literally I logged into Twitter and I was like, wait, when did Twitter get stories? It's Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, it's a lot to keep track of. It's fun and entertaining and other times. I mean, this year just has been quite draining. It's mm. just so much. Our jobs, my job has changed. You know, I've seen a lot of change time that I've that I've been working. And also I you know, it's been interesting to watch people take a step back from all of that stuff as well and take an active decision to to not be so visible in the interest of mental health. Absolutely. Cause you know this, like I talk to you about this all the time. I don't keep that app on my phone. Yeah, I re I re-download it. Like if I need to post a story, if I need to post, and then I delete it. Like there, it's not worth it to me. Like, yeah, I think that's so interesting because you're so young as well. I mean, I think it's a really healthy, um, like a really healthy way to go about it. Instagram. I mean, you've known social media. I mean, I don't know how old you would have been when you first got your first account, but I was fourteen. I mean, yeah, like a baby. So I mean, you. Mm-hmm essentially grown up with it and then you know kids who are younger than you who are coming out like that's all you know so I'm you know I'm really curious to see I will be curious to see how you all handle it as you grow older because even for me I think like I'm blessed that I kind of you know was introduced to that later to me why I was I said to someone the other day why do you have, why do these kids have phones their tent where are you going why do you need to be what do you need to be tweeting about math class hang it up you know, I was saying to my friend, like, honestly, when I have kids, they're going to have two ways. Yeah. Me and it's, you, it's, like, point blank. It's just, it's so addictive is the thing. I don't know if, I watched The Social Dilemma and I was mortified, mm-hmm. but it just seems to be addictive across the board. The, the age of um, my kids' grandparents, like our parents, and my husband and I, our parents, like, I've watched their peers, like, just sit in rooms scrolling on their phone, like teenagers. It's just addictive screen and scroll and then I've seen like 10 year olds sitting in rooms just like glued to their phones like scrolling like it just seems to it you know it's so addictive I think for people like us who work in media where it it becomes our job to be aware of everything be aware of who's new what's the new thing the new person it's just you know it's it almost feels like you you have to stay plugged in because you don't want to miss the things you feel that you need to be on top of for work. And then in the election season, you know, when the stakes were as high as they were mm-hmm. politically, you know, there was that compulsion to just sort of stay logged in and to plugged in because you feel like we need to be aware of, of what the developments are. I think it's just really, I think it's so important to just log off. I mean, I mean, to be fair, I'm a cancer, so I do that anyways. But uh, <laughs> you and I were both in London when Trump got elected. That is another really real moment in the book when 
you were like, I, I was one that was always like, I you keep it together. Like you keep it together in the mm-hmm. office. And this one time you just, like, wrenching. we got through it. I, had, I, remember, I remember I had class that day and I had class at, like in the morning and obviously, and I think it was a quick, it was a quick turnaround, right? It was like the next day. Like it wasn't like this, whoo, yeah. Yeah, I had a few shots of vodka and then I went to CSM. <laughs> I should have had a few shots of vodka. I mean, it was just, um, <laughs> it was so, uh, so deeply saddening and depressing, but it is amazing to think that we've made it to the other side. And now we're, you know, we're looking forward to a, a Biden and Kamala Harris period now. I wanted to ask you, you know, first of all, again, congratulations on this achievement, this beautiful body of work. What was your most fulfilling chapter to write? It's hard to say because, I mean, I really enjoyed writing all of them. Mm-hmm. The first chapter, Girl, I just, I mean, I loved writing it. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. And the final chapter, Bad Bitches, <laughs> because they're both, I think they both book in the, the book quite nicely. Mm-hmm. And the book is a real love letter to Black women, you know, the full spectrum of Black womanhood. Mm-hmm. And I feel like both of those chapters allowed me to just really celebrate that experience and, and lean into it and explore uh, parts of it that I hadn't really seen written about in that way like even the way we use the term girl so I think that is yeah I think those two were the most fun for me to write and then bad bitches and that idea that we don't get to just be mediocre and regular and mediocre we don't get that you we're entering into the 2020s the roaring 20s what are you most excited for and what change needs to happen I'm most excited about just a fresh start. I mean, the past decade has been a lot. We've seen a lot of change in a really rapid, at a really, really rapid pace. And this year, I mean, 2020, I feel like we're all going to have PTSD off the back of this. We're gonna need some, <laughs> everybody's going to need some therapy. Absolutely. So I'm just, I'm most looking forward to a fresh start and for a shift, you know, I mean, we, it's interesting because 2020 escalated a lot of these things that these talking points that people have been talking about for a while, for years, um, making all these predictions about how our, my, our lives might look in the future. And mm. so I feel like the, the future is here. You know, a, a lot of the work that people were doing to sort of advocate for, greater equity for people of color in the workplace, for Black people in in spaces like fashion and finance and theater and music and film and all of these different spaces like in sports and television. I mean, we're seeing all this change that's taken place in the past year. What's happened on the election front, we've seen a lot of tragedy and a lot of heartbreak this past year, but we've also seen some real gains as well. Um, some real silver linings that have happened in terms of like policy change that's come about as a result of, you know, the awful, awful tragedy of George Floyd came about as a result of that. I mean, I do feel like, you know, we're, we're seeing, we're living and we're participating in, you know, a, quite a seismic shift. And so I'm just really looking forward to, to sort of living through it and seeing how things look on the other side. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm just ready for like a, a fresh start and no longer working from home with them kids and no longer working from home with these kids i mean i want to be able to see you in person right and now on a a zoo or and be able to talk to you without worrying about my wi-fi it's all good we make (laughs) it work we move and we move kenya thank you so much for joining ott thank you for being a light in so many lives thank you for blessing us with this literary masterpiece. It's only gone up from here. I can't wait to see Girl get, you know, the TV treatment, maybe the movie treatment for the right price. Okay, speaking engagements, we manifest it once, you know, people can be in the same room. And just to plug you, first of all, you can get Girl anywhere. Um, That's the reality of life. And where can people find you on socials? You can find me on Instagram mainly. That's the only one I really engage with these days. Kenya Hunt. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much, everyone, to tuning into OTT. Please remember that we are in a pandemic, okay? Please wear, wear a mask. mask. Wear Wash a mask. Your hands. 
Wash your hands. Y'all are nasty as hell. Get your life together. Exactly. Um, we need to gather them. Like, wake up. Protect other people. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Thank you so much for joining. It's always love. It's always Thank life. you. This Thank is you such a so treat. Much. You are a joy.